everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Run Through with Vogue. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. So last week was the season two premiere of And Just Like That, Choma. You're a fan. Yes. I was waiting for that episode. And obviously, you know, the Met Ball was kind of a fun one to kick off with, don't we think? Oh, my God. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that. As if, <laughs> as if some rich lady could fill her table at the Met Gala with... And suddenly change the Willy-nilly and then swap Anthony in for Harry. I, I mean, I, I, I just clutched my pearls in yeah. horror. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I thought you might say that. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was thrilled to see the Vivian Westwood dress oh, back in me action. Me too. Many things to look forward to on the new season. We were excited about this, our particular spin on the new season, yes. which was uh, uh, taking advantage of the legendary Enid Frick, played by... A.K.A. your mother. That's right. <laughs> Candace Bergen's big uh, big Vogue editor cameo in the original series and in the first movie, yeah. which is when she originally wears that Vivian Westwood dress. Wow. It's for a Vogue shoot, right? Yeah. My mother hates doing an interview like this, so it was just for Sarah Jessica she and was us. so charming, though. Mm. That (laughs) we got her down here. And it was fun to sort of, I mean, I have to say, we have a lot of, uh, we sort of followed in Carrie's footsteps. Vogue writers, now turned podcasters, we're really following the Carrie Bradshaw. (laughs) What's next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just jump right in. All right. So, guys, we are so excited to have you both here today. And... Ken, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. I'm Candace Bergen, and that's it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And are you on the new season of And Just Like That? Well. Well, you're also Chloe's mom. Yes. So um, most importantly, Candace is my mother because otherwise (laughs) she would never want to do this. This is her nightmare. (laughs) But I love Sarah Jessica, so I'm so happy to to do anything with her. Here's the thing about Candace Bergen. (laughs) This is sincerely what I don't understand. And I tried to set the table the last time we spent 16 hours together. um, Was And I, I really mean this, and Chloe, maybe you can organize this, but I really don't understand. I came home and I told my husband this. I don't understand why Candace and I aren't friends. Like, I don't <laughs> understand why we don't spend time together or eat together or 
talk on the phone or hang out. Like, well, that's so easy. You are one of the great people ever. (laughs) Fun and funny and honest and candid and observant and curious. You asked me a million questions about what I was going to make for dinner. I also asked you about what you were going to eat when you got home. I don't know. But your mom, Chloe, this will come as no surprise to you. It's just, she's just extraordinary. She is so special. Well, I'm glad we got this out there because now, now we know. And now, and, <laughs> and just like that, a friendship is born. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah Jessica, for that. When did you guys first meet? I think maybe it's possible our paths crossed because we share some mutual friends, but very cursory, not not in any way that would have suggested to me that I had a shot, you know, like at a friend, <laughs> something that had potential follow through. But of course, ultimately, the most time spent with her, with her, the woman in the room with who I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, was on the show, and she was amazing. Also, she's just a great actor. <laughs> and she's all real. It's all real. She's listening. She's responding. She's making stuff up. She's, you know. So that's probably the first time I really had t- real time with her was on the show, the first time. Which was many years ago now. Indeed. What, 23 years ago? Because it was season three? I think it was toward the and um, yes, yeah, season was it season, season three? four? I think was it season four? I think, I think it was it's season, season three because I rewatched it this weekend. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. So, yes, so then a Vogue season- idea, yeah, was season okay. three. And I have to say, I hadn't rewatched it since I've worked at Vogue, which has been 12 years, so that's a long time. And it's very funny to go back and see filming at Four Times Square. Yeah. And I actually, as a high school student at the time, came to the film set because, of course, as, you know, a 17-year-old, her filming at Vogue was just such a thrill. And then 10 years later, I was working there. So a real (laughs) Nepo baby alert there. (laughs) (laughs) But, Ken, do you remember filming that episode? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I remember filming in whatever office. I think we used... It was the Vogue office. It was the Vogue office. But not Anna's office. No. Yeah. And I remember seeing the closet with the hundreds of boots. Yeah. um, And then then we did our later episode in a townhouse someplace on the east side. And and, um, yeah. And you play Enid, who is... I feel like everyone says based on Anna Winter, but actually, if you rewatch the episode, Carrie references Anna Winter. So I feel like, and also Enid is very in the weeds on the actual editing. So I feel like Enid was supposed to be just a general terrifying senior editor. Who did you base the character on? Anna. Okay. Did you know Anna? How? No. Okay. So how did you? <laughs> I I sat in front of her at a screening of a movie. So yes. It was not any movie. Uh, Candace and I sat in front of Anna and B, Anna's daughter, uh, when we were both in college uh, at the premiere of The Devil Wears Prada. Stop it. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> and I've told, definitely told B this. I think I've even told Anna this. And Anna at the end said to B, not inaudibly, I never said that about writing her reference letter. <laughs> so, yes, we sat in front of Anna at not just any movie. But there you go. It wasn't like Lowe's on a Saturday night. 
Um, so you based it on Anna. Were there any other sort of ticks or people or, you know, Meryl Streep based um, Miranda Priestly on Mike Nichols. So it doesn't have to be. Really? Yeah, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> huh. 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 Uh, no, it was it was it was just Anna and the Vogue, the fashion world that I had sort of brushed up against. OK. Sometimes Polly Mellon would come. Did you know her? Polly Mellon? Yeah. Well, I worked with her a few times. Okay. Yeah, do you remember your first Vogue shoot? Yeah. You want to tell us about it? I think Polly Mellon was the fashion coordinator on that shoot. Okay. And and she was very no-nonsense and um, very organized. And um, and it was with Abaddon. Oh, wow. 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 Sarah, wow. Jessica, do you remember your first shoot with Vogue? Had you shot with Vogue when you recorded that episode? Yes, I do remember my first shoot because it was a you know, one of those snowstorms that makes headlines I think for lack of preparation, not the ones that make headlines before they don't happen. <laughs> it was terrible weather but beautiful and the streets were piled with snow and the studio um it was Stephen Mizell mm-hmm. and the studio was down in, I'm going to say like Jones Street. It was like between Lafayette and Broadway, I think. Uh, so I walked there because there were no cabs. I couldn't get a cab or anything. And I got there. Whoa, you walked there. It was Grace Coddington was the sittings editor for that shoot. I remember myself. Grace. And I walked up all these steps and I got there and it was Garen doing hair. It was a tiny studio, but at the studio shooting in front of me and before me was Linda Evangelista and some other highly notable, most important faces of our time at that time and still. And they brought me into a teeny, you know, very dimly lit kind of area where they were throwing clothes at people. And the clothes that Grace Coddington threw at me was the teeniest, tiniest white bikini <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. A white bikini. In the Stop it. In the Just to start? With no preparation. I had no idea I was wearing a bikini. And I don't wear bikinis, never have and never will. Certainly <laughs> start now. And what was I going to say? No. Of course, yes. You know, <laughs> right away. And they... They put it on me and made some adjustments and um, put me in this quite small studio. And it looked almost like somebody's storage unit. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just interesting. And Garen was like, let's just wet her hair. <gasps> My hair was just kind of wet. And Linda Evangelista very kindly offered to stay and help, which I thought was very sweet, even at the time. But I was like, please don't watch me do this. Please don't like watch me attempt to try to do what you do. No, I'd hate for her to be the person watching. She was trying to make, like, you can't just adopt her into your bloodstream in front of Stephen Mizell. Like, I would need years um, or at least a day. (laughs) Anyway, that was my first shoot. And they did use the picture, and I'm laughing, and it's, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say, like, it's a great picture of me, but it, certainly holds a lot of memories and I, I and I was thrilled and I wrote thank you notes to every single person you're kidding that, that shoot. <gasps> yeah because it was such a big deal you know it was such a big deal <sighs> did you write thank you notes never <laughs> 
I'm ashamed, sort of. No, no, no. <laughs> it's probably because I thought this will never happen again. So I want some kind of documentation. Like, Well, it happened a bunch more times, so you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thank you notes. <laughs> I keep writing them. <laughs> you, you're still writing them? I wrote two uh, Friday. Wow. Because in my head, I'm thinking, if my children see me, they might say, what is that envelope? I will say it's a thank you note, right? Like that will become part of their life. That's my hope. Well, you were like that when I was little. I had a little personalized stationery from when I was like five years old and had to like write thank you notes to all my little friends who came to the birthday parties. <laughs> That's so sweet. So Polly Mellon wasn't getting them, but <laughs> Daniel in the fourth grade was. <laughs> was it from Mrs. Something Something on the Upper East? Remember the great stationery store? Yes, Ms. it was. <laughs> John Strong? Was it Mrs. Yes. John Strong? And, and they were a fortune. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. They were like the Belgian loafer of stationers. I've got Belgian loafers on. <laughs> Never without her Belgians. <laughs> Do you remember shooting the Vogue scene? Was that the first time you'd been in the Vogue closet? I think, was that the first time I was in the Vogue closet? I'm going to say it might have been. And, you know, Ronnie Rifkin, the great Ronnie Rifkin was in that episode, and he's so great in it. He's so good. And it's he plays your first editor before you move over to Enid because he drops his pants and reveals his very impressive Versace briefs. And in a way, it was very um, – it was a sort of one of the first pre-two TV <laughs> episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just don't remember, but I remember – even if it had been being like in a, a state and thinking, wow, I'm doing this for so many people. Like I'm here as the eyes for millions of other people across the globe who would want to be standing here. And, in, you know, in those days, the closet's so big now. It's so brightly lit and there's so much natural light in 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 the space. But th that Vogue closet is not impressive in size. It's just impressive in what's on the shelves mm. right. and there's no exterior there's no real light it's all lit from above yeah. with it was a real closet yeah yes yes it might have been a xerox machine you know place whatever you know but maybe that made it even more special have you ever had an intimidating boss or mentor like enid is to carry yeah and i've worked with people who are intimidating but i kind of like it i kind of like being scared of or intimidated by somebody because it typically means that I admire them, that I want to know something more about them. I'm not intimidated by people I don't respect or people who are bullies or behave poorly. I don't care about it anymore. Do you guys feel this similar way or no? Yeah, no. I, I think I'm impressed by people who are who are sort of strong bullish, not bullies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Ken, have you ever had someone who intimidated you? Are you kidding? Well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I can't remember them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but sure. Bolly Mellon, for example. Yeah, there we you go. Found, you found her intimidating. I mean, so so was the was Enid based on Sarah Jessica? Do you know what Enid was actually based on Anna or do we know? You know, like Chloe says, we reference Anna, so mm -hmm. it feels separate. But I think that kind of idea of, you know, a headliner kind of editor, somebody right. who's 
who's on the tips of people's tongues, who people know the name, whether you're in their business or not, like that kind of world impression and the influence they wield. Like, I think maybe there was some of Grace in it, Grace Coddington, not temperamentally necessarily, or the way she spoke or the way she dressed, but the idea that there is somebody who is familiar in the world and Keep in mind, this was before social media. So someone's right. kind of, like, someone's kind of um, injecting themselves into into people's lives and vernacular, and they're not doing it by virtue of a telephone. They're doing it by virtue of the way they are working and the images they're creating. So I feel like Enid was like that and maybe a little mix of the great editor, forgive me, who passed at Harper's, who brought um, Harper's back. Um, Kate Betts. Um, no, um, prior, you know, the the British. Oh, um, oh, I know. Liz, um, Liz, Liz yes. Like, you know, that kind of person who's like in the world and on the streets, but also, you know, the iconicity. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I mean, we all want to know how that iconic scene in the, in the closet came about. I mean, were you, did you truly freak out about the Manolos? Was that planned? How did that, the Mary Janes, love a Mary Jane act. Two um, <laughs> have a sure silver pair of Manolo Mary Janes, so I freak out about mine regularly. But how did that seem come come together? We definitely talked about what that shoe was going to be, right. and I had my original ones that had been loaned to me. Oh wow! From Manolo and from George, previous to that, right. so we talked a lot about what was the shoe that was going to be the thing that Carrie just felt like you know, she might need to go to a hospital. Like what would be the <laughs> shoe? And, the um, heart attack shoe. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I'm sure Michael talked to me and Pat about it at length because he would even say himself, he would not have known what shoe to cite as the, as the one. Mm. And I did, like, I think they loaned me a pair for something. And then they were like, no, keep it. It's a sample, you know, keep it. And mine were so beat up, but I loved them. <laughs> it was a sincere... Mm-hmm. religious experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I now call Candace Toto because that's what my three-year-old calls her. <laughs> oh, that is the sweetest. Oh, my goodness. How does Candace or Grandma call to Toto? What is Toto? Is that, he um... just randomly started calling her Toto. She started with Grand Can and then she decided she didn't like Grand Can. Oh, right? I love Grand Can. <laughs> yeah, she decided it was too, I don't know. Grand Can is funny. It's good. <laughs> So now she's Toto, but now I call her Toto. Um, but Toto, you didn't do another Sex and City episode until season six, which is one of the most, I think, iconic episodes of the whole series. It is such a good – I don't remember any of the episodes, and I've never seen them except sometimes I was forced to watch them for cutting reasons, you know, like edits or whatever. Because you were so a producer, Sarah Jessica. Correct. And thank God, because nobody and- else knew fashion. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Hatfield, of course, and Molly. But, yeah. um, but you know, meh, I'm just kidding. Um, but that is an episode that I remember really, really well. And it's not that I've seen it again. It's just, it's, you're talking about Splat, right? Yeah. That's an amazing episode. Was Barishnikov in that episode? Yes. yes. Ah. Yes. Well, what's interesting, I rewatched that also this weekend, and the premise involving Enid is that Enid sort of uh, calls uh, Carrie to Milos and grovels and says, 
I, I'm hosting a sort of dinatoire party and I need a plus one. I need a date, which the idea of that seems absurd at this point, that this iconic woman would need a date. And, she, you know, Enid says, I need you to have your Alexander Petrovsky bring bring me a date. And so um, Barishnikov comes with his uh, friend, who's Wally, Sean. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you call Wally a hobbit. <laughs> Did you ever apologize to Wally for no. that? <laughs> and I always ended up work, working with Wally and in some form calling him a hobbit. He's <laughs> so great. You well, guys were so great in that episode. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was fun. Well, and you've known Wally for 100 years. Yeah. When did you first meet Wally? Well, with Poppy. Okay. Uh, when they did my dinner with Andre. Poppy was what I called my father, uh, Louis Mal, who directed a film with Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory. So you and Wally, you and The Hobbit were chatting, and then uh, Kristen Johnston plays the party girl who falls out the window. Yeah. And it's, yeah. But there's also this subtext to the episode. Sarah Jessica, correct me if, if I'm misreading this, which is she's deciding whether to move to Paris with Alexander Petrovsky. And Enid is has this moment where she says it's it's a desert out there for a woman of my age. And you can't be that. swimming in my wading pool with Petrovsky. And mm-hmm. you wonder if Carrie's having this realization of I could stay in New York and become this sort of sad fashion spinster or I can go to Paris uh, and join this man. And I wonder if that storyline feels dated now or different. And especially because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't – isn't Carrie and Just Like That probably about the same age as Enid was then, early early 50s? And, and she's living her best life a bit. Yeah. My guess is that those ideas – would probably feel dated now if, you know, um, you're bringing up something that no one else has. So it's really interesting to consider. And also, I think there's another thing happening in there. And I don't recall the lines, but I think Kristen Johnston's character says something like New York is dead. It's Mm -hmm. not fun. It's over. Might as well just I can't remember that famous line before she literally falls out of the window and Mm -hmm. dies. Yeah. Um, she makes some proclamation about New York's potential, you know, its future. And between, I think, Enid's shared thoughts and sentiments and Carrie's own also conflicted romantic life, you know, is she running from big toward Petrovsky, freedom, liberty? But I think, you know, if we want to look at those lines, yes, but even if they are dated, we we could probably argue that there are many women in New York right now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So saying it out loud maybe has to be more thoughtfully considered. But I think there are probably women in New York who are anywhere between 45 and 55, never mind 65, 75 and up, who feel that it's a vast wasteland, you know, that it's yes. just impossible <laughs> to meet people, you know, and that the ways in which we have started meeting people have been, that's been hard and complicated too. Like there's not, there doesn't seem to be the avenue that exists for, you know, cultivating a relate a romantic relationship, never mind companionship with someone new, you know, maybe, maybe then it, maybe it's the way that we use language that makes it feel like a little like, Ooh, it didn't feel, it just was like, huh, I don't know. 
I don't know, a seated dinner right. maybe, but like a dinatoire was like, okay, you know. What she's is just, a dinatoire? It's when it's like a, <laughs> uh, it's like serve food or standing. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a French idea, isn't it? A dinatoire. I never hear it outside of Paris. Yeah, it's like a Paris. buffet or, where you're not yeah. seated. Oh. Food, on, food on tour. Yeah. Food <laughs> on tour. You're never satisfied at a dinatoire. I avoid In them here. at the play. <laughs> <laughs> And just like that, the run-through will be back. <laughs> I feel like I haven't made quite enough and just like that jokes. I know. <laughs> it's, you, I'm just shook at how restrained you've been. And <laughs> just like that joke. I mean, I think we have a, a whole season of that. Oh my God. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills, or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes, and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Uh, Toto's going to think this is a boring question, but I don't care. (laughs) Um, I just, I think there's, it's important that both of you played these very iconic zeitgeist-defining characters with Carrie and Murphy Brown. Mm. For the younger listeners, Murphy Brown was a... (laughs) A sitcom that ran on CBS for 10 years, starting in 1988. Candace won the Emmy five times. It was a big deal. Um, And she, Murphy Brown, was a big deal for the culture, and as Carrie was. I wonder if there's any relationship between those two characters and how they sort of empowered women to live their own lives. And also if you – your relationship to those characters has changed over the years. I mean, you haven't just like that. You did a Murphy revival a few years ago. Do you like Murphy less now or more? Oh, I love Murphy. I, I love Murphy was a great character, and mm-hmm. uh, and I loved playing her and 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 uh, and Sarah Jessica. I remember watching when the show was especially hitting. Well, it was always strong, but what a huge impact it had. Yeah. Well, it's different now with streaming. I mean, I remember I was reading about. Murphy was up against uh, Monday Night Football because it was just assumed it would be only women. And we made a dent. Right. (laughs) That's when you knew it was sort of— They were not happy. (laughs) (laughs) And they made a dent, but, you know, Murphy Brown was really, like, 
it just took the world. It was like, it took it to task, like everything. And, and people had such strong responses to like, they were, you know, people were so terrified of what she might say, how she said it, you know, what it meant and how it's going to, you know, it, it's really incredible. And, and for those who will listen to this and haven't seen Murphy Brown, watch Candace Bergen. <laughs> watch Candace Bergen be political and say what's on her mind, not be afraid, not apologize for it, be an authority. I mean, a million ways in which, you know, touching on things that just had yet to be have been said, done, illustrated. It was it, it was huge. It was the cover of the New York Times. The cover of the New York Times was oh, commenting really? on <laughs> what she said that upset elected officials in this country. Yes. It really bothered them. It got really, you know, under their skin. It's incredible. Well, and just to for people who don't know, about 30 years ago, Dan Quayle used Murphy Brown as an example of the decline of American values, family values, because she made the choice to have a child as a single mother. And it became a huge political lightning rod. And what what was that like, Toto? <laughs> oh, I, I, I just uh, burrowed in. I, I didn't go out. I didn't comment. I didn't say anything because it was for – for a couple of weeks, it was – on the cover of every magazine or mm. paper, it was just everywhere, and I I, I was just uh, totally cowed by it. Sarah Jessica, was there a moment for Sex and the City where it really entered the culture wars in a similar way? It was always in the culture wars. Well, but did, were people pissed about anything? I can't remember. Yeah, I think they were angry about things all the time. Right. But I, I guess, like Candace, I just chose to not listen or even be that aware of like whatever peripheral chatter because it just couldn't it it wasn't going to change what we were doing and I remember one time a gentleman stopped me there was a great restaurant it was called Aggie's and it was on Houston and McDougal okay forever and it was an amazing coffee shop um just at the northern end of Soho and this gentleman came up to me and started telling me how much he didn't like the show oh god but I said to him have you seen the show? Just something about, I was like, have you seen the show? And he's like, no, absolutely not. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> people had reactions to the show based on a theoretical idea that it was a bunch of, you know, wild, untamed women running around New York City having sex. Like it was, you know, and it was so objectionable, so, so beneath them, you know, meanwhile, anything that men did with guns and, you know, whatever on television was perfectly fine and acceptable, but they were wrong about what the show was about, first of all. But, you know, so I think people were mad a lot, but you have to kind of think, well, people are mad or they object or they're mis- they're misunderstanding what we're doing. But there's a host of people that are enjoying or connecting to it or feeling affection or seeing themselves or maybe seeing a friendship that they'd like to have or a way they'd like to conduct a friendship or maybe even the way they'd like to be seen as a sexual person or any of it. So you sort of just are like, eh. I remember... The last episode of Sex in the City, I was walking down Madison Avenue because I'd seen it before. No, no, no. You hadn't seen it. Uh, let me fact check the story. <laughs> oh, God. We were all watching it together. Me, I was a senior in high school. My friends were over. We were watching with my mom. My poor stepfather, who's the loveliest man and just did not need to watch Sex and the City with his teenage stepdaughter. <laughs> 
he took the dog out. And so he took Jerry, the golden doodle, walking up Madison Avenue. And they walked past Vico, which was our Sunday night dinner. <laughs> and the owner of Vico is this older time man. He goes, what is wrong with Americans? It's like the Super Bowl. No one is out tonight. <laughs> it's Nobody like the whole city <laughs> was inside wow. watching the finale, which oh, isn't a thing that. anymore. No, I know. People no. watch things so differently. No, that's such a nice story. It was nice for Jerry. He got a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was it like yeah. thinking about, you know, doing and just like that after, you after you know, every, the way people watch TV is different, the way, you know, your character's different. Well, and the in, internet, there's social yeah, media reactions yeah, to everything. That exactly. didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about it that I wish were different. I wish that you could film on the streets and mm. somebody would immediately share that with everybody else because it's an important scene or a story point. You know, I wish that there was some propriety about access and how to naturally choose to embargo something like that as somebody on the street. You know, I I miss the standing date for television. I loved it. I looked so much forward to the shows that you would have to wait till Wednesday night or Friday or Sunday or whatever it was. I love waiting for something. It's like, not reading the last page of a book first, you know, it's like mm. you earn it, you, you wait for it, you talk about it with people the next day. So I miss that. And I, I you know on social media, you know, is a complicated relationship for anybody in, in the arts or entertainment who are available, meaning like it's just different to try to create something and offer it when it's already been disseminated. It's just a strange way of producing something. Uh, Sarah Jessica, this weekend I also watched the documentary about And Just Like That, and I was aghast at your archive. You have kept, I mean, (laughs) Andrew Bolton would blanch at the way this is organized. I mean, can she has every outfit from every episode of Sex and the City cataloged and boxed beautifully. Where's your Murphy archive? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is kept. It's devastating. You know, I remember when Murphy rapped, people, there was like lemmings going to the women's wardrobe room and, and everyone taking jackets and skirts and scarves. And I said, well, wait, I wanted that jacket. It was, I mean, there was just... I have one silk Gucci scarf with cats all over it. Yeah, I that remember you wore that. on Murphy. I wear oh. that a lot. <laughs> and one like Mark Cross briefcase that Murphy carried. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, that's it. Sarah Jessica, do you think you'll ever do like a carry exhibition? I mean, I read about people's like their contracts and all the things that they ask for and that they have to have in a room or a space or a car or a smell or a food. And I never had any of that. But for some reason, early on in my career, my attorney, who I'm still with. So that's like 35 years. He was like, you should always ask for your clothes. Smart. Yes, so smart. I just did. And we've had a couple people ask about it. I mean, you know, like a university will ask or something like that. But I'm trying to understand what value they actually have. Or I don't mean value. I just mean like... Because, you know, it's it's only a burden for my kids. It's not like they want it. You know, Do your twins ever want to borrow things? The sad thing is their feet are bigger than mine now. (laughs) (laughs) Because I really, in my head, I really did imagine that they would have all of my shoes and, and, and they borrow stuff, but their bodies are different. They're taller. They're like, you know, I'm like, how old are they? Are they still growing? They'll be 14 at the end of this month. Okay, all right. So they're still, now that they're still growing, we'll see. 
You were very involved in the early wardrobe, and I was listening to an interview you were doing, and you said that you and Pat Field were just thrifting by necessity at the beginning, which I just think is remarkable to think about. What was the the floodgate opening? Was it the Fendi baguette? Was it bringing Manolo's in? It was the baguette. Manolo was a little bit after um, – I'm pretty sure, and I think this is like documented, but I'm pretty sure it was the baguette. Okay. And um, we, you know, both of us, Pat and Molly and I all knew George um, Malcolmus from Manolo. So that was an easier relationship to kind of, you know, cultivate and, and exploit. But um, and, and that did come, I think, afterwards. But it was Fendi. And I don't know why Fendi. Maybe they had nothing to lose. <laughs> I, I don't know. But they were the first people that really, you know, in the luxury world, so the other day they they were like our street cred. They were like the bona fides. Wow. And that, you know, it was a very different story. And it it wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, the floodgates open, but it was certainly much easier a conversation to even have with anybody. Can we borrow? You know, people didn't like laugh and hang up. You did the same thing with Murphy, right? You sort of took over a wardrobe a bit. You got involved. Yeah. I I I went to designers and just Who'd you go to? I went to Donna Karen. I went to Isaac Mizrahi, who had a line at that time. And, um, and, and they, Ralph. And Ralph. So all people you knew. Yeah, all people I knew who gave me discounts. And you actually – and I like that you uh, you always wore your own shoes because you didn't want Murphy to wear inexpensive shoes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I read something this weekend that really stopped me in my tracks, which is that um, you'd go next door to men's wardrobe for Murphy's off-duty look yeah. and borrow things. But apparently – you borrowed a baseball cap, but you wanted to have your ponytail out of it. So the woman who did wardrobe cut a hole in it. And we started that trend. Is no that way. not possible. <laughs> so there were no I know. holes in the back It doesn't of- seem possible, but, they, we but that's what they did. Baseball yeah. caps didn't have holes in the back. Wow. I hope, I hope there's some residuals for that invention. I yeah. don't think there are. I'll <laughs> <laughs> be right. Do you remember being involved in what Enid was wearing? No. Did you feel comfortable when you came back this time around um, on this, on and just like that, like Molly and everybody? You felt like I you loved were, Molly. But isn't she great? Yeah, yeah, loved her. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I felt I felt comfortable with everybody. It was a lovely set to be on, wasn't it? Yeah. I know. I loved it. I loved our days together. Um, and when all those other ladies showed up and we just sat in that room with Gloria Steinem, I mean, like, that was a that was an amazing day. Yeah. Gloria Steinem is in the episode, and you've known her for 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> How did you feel about bringing Enid back? Oh, well, first of all, I loved Enid's name, Enid Frick. I thought it was a stroke of genius to have an editor named Enid Frick. And, um, and, and it was, I was thrilled to come back as Enid. It was, it was, there was no like, uh, it was really fun. She was. Michael wanted, Michael wanted her back so much. And you never know, people might just say, like, I don't want it. You know, a lot of people don't want to work after working for a lot of years. But then you were telling me all the stories of Rome and 
Rome and shoot a movie in Rome. And she had a great oh. time. For people who don't yeah. know, uh, Candace filmed Book Club 2 in Rome last summer and moved to the Hotel de Russie for two months. She was like Eloise wow. of the Russie. <laughs> and she oh, had Cacio e Pepe and Aperol spritzes every night. And yep. it really was weight gaining. Okay, I was going to say <laughs> a high point, but sure, that too. <laughs> I have to say my favorite parts of And Just Like That, I was watching that also again this weekend. It's just how – what a nice spin it is on getting older and talking mm. about that. And Carrie's hip replacement is so <laughs> well handled and so funny. Yeah. And I was the Miranda and Charlotte for Candace's double hip replacement. <laughs> so I know about that. Um, but I was curious what both of you would say about what the hardest thing about getting older is. I, I find – it's hard to walk. My Both my hips are, are now fake, and I walk like this kind of old thing, and um, and I don't have the energy that I used to, and physical stuff happens, and I find myself seeing doctors more than I used to. And But other than that, you know, I'm grateful. I'm trying to think, too, of like, I think, you know, the idea that I have to wear glasses it's, uh, it's, it's bothersome to me because I'm grateful, but I read all the time and I, I don't like that I have to reach for something in order to have that pleasurable experience, even if it's just a text exchange with somebody. Mm. But also just think like what you're asking of your body, just like what Candace said, like, if you ask of your body for a lot of years, I feel like I've always relied on my body to just do what I asked of it, running, standing in heels all day, running in heels, being on point shoes, running for a cab, you know, dashing through a subway, just being on the streets felt really easy. And, and so you, you feel stuff like you're like, Oh my God, why is that? Like, why am I doing, you know? Yeah. It's just like that kind of stuff. But I also think it's like, yeah, you've lived a life and it adds up and, some of the stuff that adds up is really helpful, like courage or authority or being brave about something or just speaking candidly. You know, a lot of just wisdom. Maybe I'm a better parent now than I was five years ago. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But then there's these other things you're like, well, that adds up too. So what are you going to do? What's the best parenting advice you've ever given or gotten? I don't give parenting Well, sorry. Advice. I'm looking for parent advice. So I said given, but I meant gotten. <laughs> Trying to think. I mean, I mostly listen to my mom just because I'm one of eight kids. And I think it's not one thing. I think it's just the things that I I knew at the time she was trying to do that I was often, you know, resisted. But more so now, I have the same expectations for my own kids. I want the same things for them. Don't leave the house without a book to read. You know, be polite. Golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, try to load, try to learn how to freaking load the dishwasher by the time you're 13, you know, uh, help out. Um, you know, practical like, things will get you far. <laughs> yeah, learn how to sew on a button, you know, know how to do your white separately than your colors. I don't know. You, what do you guys, what's been your. Well, Chloe has gotten very little practical mothering advice from me. That's because, not true. You no, know, I remember being in Hawaii, the two of us, and um and I, and you were off playing, and I thought, look, they have washers and dryers here. I'll do a load of laundry, which I'd never done. And so 
I threw stuff into the dryer, thinking it was the washer. She filled the dryer with soap. No. Stop it. <laughs> Detergent was everywhere. <laughs> and it was just, the clothes were just covered with powder. And um, oh, no. Fortunately, I had very practical British nannies, so they made up for that. <laughs> but there are a million ways that you've been giving advice and counsel to your daughter, a million ways that you've lived that she's watched and seen. It's just indisputable. It's you, you are playing a good game here, but <laughs> and it's the reason that, you know, as Candace talked so much about, you know, your children and how much they want to be with, you know, you guys want to be together. And that's because of the parent. Absolutely. Right? No, absolutely. And also, I think that's the, the best advice I've ever gotten about parenting is just teach them what you want them to know and be the best example for them. And mm. I think with. Toto, that's always been the case. <laughs> um, and also yeah. just now thinking I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and thinking about her starting Murphy Brown when I was uh, my son's age now. It's just insane what what that juggling was like. So, yeah. It's amazing. Bravo, Toto. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah Jessica, we know you have a packed day and congratulations on the new yeah, season. We're so Sarah Jessica. I'm always so happy to see you, Candace. I'll keep texting. And just like that, that's it for this episode of The Run Through. The Run Through of Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and Kevin Barasa, and mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you like the show, would you consider leaving us a review on iTunes? We love hearing from you, and your feedback really helps us. See you next week. Bye. Get balanced or thrive trying. My name is Les, and I'm the host of Balanced Black Girl, a podcast dedicated to helping you feel your best. Join me for casual conversations about what it means to live a well-rounded life. I cover everything from how to make friends as an adult to how to create a workout routine that works for you to how to practice better financial wellness. Tune in for approachable conversations with wellness thought leaders and inspiring guests, as well as intimate solo chats with me for relatable advice. Follow wherever you get your podcasts and look out for new episodes every Tuesday.